This morning we're going to preach from the whole chapter 24 of Genesis, but it's such a long chapter, I thought I would just read the beginning and the end for you that um, we could refer to other verses, but we, we see in the beginning and the end the, the um, heart of what we're talking about today, namely the, the, the blessedness of this family wedding that... Isaac and Rebekah would be on to at the prayers of their father, Abraham, and his servant. So let us begin to read with verse 1 of chapter 24. Go to verse 14, and then to skip over from there to verse 57. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land, to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water now. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. To verse 57. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. And then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So then they sent away Rebekah, so then they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. 
Then Rebekah and his parent and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels that followed the man. The man. So the servant took Rebekah and de- departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahoi Roy, where he for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother's mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. May the Lord be with us as we as we look at this passage of Scripture. I don't think we can fully appreciate the drama that forms the backstory of this passage of Scripture. If we worry today, like about our church here, oh God, we are we are so small. We we only have so many people coming each Sunday. Oh oh God, what our denomination is so small, and the, the taken as a whole, the Reformed denominations are are so small, and many of them are rent asunder with division, as the culture sweeps the pagan culture sweeps through their midst, seducing this man and that with unbiblical ideas. So we we are very prone to look out at our world today and worry about ourselves and especially being such a minority as we see the millions of people of America. We see ourselves as such a minority. We we are apt to say, woe is me. Go God, what will be my end in the in the situation I find myself? Because we do not have the strength of numbers. We could fall back on the faith of man and the faith of our church, the faith of uh, the <clears throat> the larger opinions and uh, monies that we might have if we were more popular. But we have not these things, and so we worry on that basis or at that level. Well, if we worry today, put yourself in the place of Abraham and Sarah and their family, and to Nahor his family here. Uh, Laban, as he uh, presents himself to be the, uh, the, the the prominent male of Abraham's family back in the east, put yourself in their place. Uh, Abraham has, lo- has just lost his wife, Sarah. <clears throat> he recognizes that he is an old man himself. God has made all these promises to Abraham about the fact that his line, his covenant line would be fruitful and that, that his descendants would number as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. God has told him this. And yet, Abraham, in terms of a, a virtual inheritance or a, an actual inheritance, has, has almost nobody but the people that are with him. Now, that was a large group of people. Um, from this passage, we get the idea that God had blessed Abraham with multi-generational people that worked for him, like this old man that basically was the manager of everything that he owned, who was who turns out to be so godly. 
And so God had blessed Abraham with other people that were covenantal, that were that uh, had abide, that were abiding by the word of God as it was ministered to them by Abraham. And yet, outside of that, what, what do they have? And so this comes down upon Abraham as Isaac is of marrying age and his father is old and worried about his own death. His wife, his dear wife, Sarah, beautiful Sarah, had died and gone to be with the Lord herself. He buried her in the cave of Machpelah of the last chapter. And now Abraham is concerned. What have we done? How, how will this covenant promise bear itself out if I do not get this young man married? Now, one of the things that we'll see in the first point is that Abraham is very well aware of the power of the covenant, the power of the covenant community and the necessity of it. He, when he talks to his servant, he gives him two commands. You shall never take a wife for Isaac out of the Canaanites, out of the people of the, of, of the land that are here already. Never. He was adamant about it. And then when the, when the servant talks about going back to, uh, to obtain this bride, is insecure about doing it, Abraham says, you shall not take, the, this, shall not take Isaac back there. And he very meticulously argues about the fact that, God, that they're in a different chapter now. His life is not like it was before he left Ur of the Chaldees and the, the, the city of Haran. God is doing progressive things with them. Now they are in the land of Canaan, and all of God's promises have to do with this particular place. So the servant must go back and obtain the bride and bring her to them. The, 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 uh, the servant was rightfully concerned with the ease or the difficulties of that, and so spoke of that somewhat to uh, Abraham. But in the midst of that, we see uh, some, some great blessings that, that entailed. And we see that the that this whole affair ended with a blessed wedding, um, not not a wedding like we might have, but a, a family wedding where these two young people were betrothed to each other and they began life together. And so this is the story of that, and it's a story of how God brought them through the chaos of that day, like He will bring us through the chaos of our day. You know, <laughs> we have almost no. Um, Money in the bank, you might say, or we, 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 we do not operate by the things that we have in hand. But today we operate by faith, much like Abraham and Sarah did back then and Isaac. We operate by faith because the things that we have are mainly tied up with the Lord and his power, his ineffable power. But the power that is his as divine God, and he's not given that to us as so many riches and so much power on this earth that we might depend upon because he wants us to be faithful to him. He wants us to walk along and depend upon him and not on the things that he's given us. And so um, we see Abraham and his family, we see them living by faith here, and it's really it's touching to see how they do, and it's encouraging at the same time. So let us look at the at the four observations that we draw from this larger text, and they all have to do with the covenant family and the covenant community of which Abraham and his um, servants and family constituted at that time. 
Uh, first of all, we see just the, the, the baseline importance of covenant life, and we see how the inner life is related to the outer life, so that uh, we, we, today's church does not have this sense of covenant. Today's families uh, basically see themselves as individual family units, and um, they tend to go from church to church as the, as the Spirit moves them. Uh, but they don't really have a, a real sense of covenant community. They, 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 their, their, their theology is very reductionistic. It's, a, it's a, a very minimal set of beliefs. And so as they go from church to church this way and that way, if the church apparently has just a modicum of Christian thinking on the surface, then they'll go to that church and try it for a while. And then they'll leave there and they'll go to another church for a while. But they don't have this ongoing sense of covenant community. Brothers and sisters, we are individual families, but we are also a part of a covenant community. So our church, with its self-conscious awareness of the covenant, our church is also the source of our first or most important community. That is the community of faith. And uh, we realize that our lives are invested with each other. We're concerned and we pray for our younger members. We're praying for little ones like Liza, even now, and Charlie back there, and, and uh, Wolfie in the front, and uh, Kaya, and, uh, and uh, uh, Louis, wherever he is. We, we, uh, we pray for these kids because we're, we're aware that in God's providence, he has put us together. We also pray for the older members, not, uh, the really old members, like Pastor Canodal. And then, uh, so, oh, oh, I guess Martha qualifies. She's probably a little younger than I am. But, but uh, we pray for everyone because we realize that their lives are bound with our lives. We may upset each other once in a while. We may make decisions that we don't like. That we, you know, but but that, that's all between us and the Lord in a sense. And we, we go forward with a realization that God is in the midst of this and that the covenant life is really, really important. Now, first of all, I just stress the perspective of the covenant and that in what I've said so far. We need to realize that we're not just independent entities. And so we need to pray for each other. How much do you pray for the other Families of this church, for the other children, for the other older people. How much do you pray? Do you see do you see each other's weaknesses and vulnerabilities? Do you lift that up before the Lord and ask the Lord to cover us where we are inept or inadequate? You should. Now, in this case, <clears throat> um, we see this shines through all through this text. This idea of the covenant. We see. Uh, we see, we'll, see, we'll look in the second point about the covenant piety marked by Abraham's servant and Rebekah. But right on the face of it, we see this come through in the first, first verse with Abraham's words. He says, um, <clears throat> he says he was advanced in age, and so Abraham said to his, the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had. So right away we know that the, the, the oldest servant is more than just some slave or some somebody like that. He's like the, the, uh, the, vice, the vice president of the corporation or a, C, a CEO or something like that for, of, of Abraham's house. And uh, we, we see throughout this text, we will see the influences and the... Uh, the, the uh, 
the piety that, are, that have worked out in this man's life. We see that this man is no outsider. He's no casual bystander. This is a man who has been with Abraham for a long time and has imbibed his theology. He's part of the, the, the real close covenant community of Abraham. And that's, that's how he makes his decision. Everything he says in this chapter comes out of that mindset. And we see the same thing with Rebecca and the family of Nahor. They haven't seen each other. This was a 400, 500 mile journey. And in that day, that was a significant journey. And yet when they go back for Rebecca, the, the kind of response that we see from Abraham, from Laban. We know later on that Laban was a real problem when it came to uh, finding a, a, a wife for Jacob, Isaac's son. But at this point, Laban reveals or shows forth many sanctifying senses and sensibilities. Where did this come from? Where, where, did, they, where did they find uh, people like this that had some sensitivities and sensibilities like Abraham and his servant? Well, it was because Abraham's family, before he left uh, uh, Ur of the Chaldees and before he left Haran, Abraham's larger family was a godly family. They weren't as godly as it turned out that Abraham was because God continued to work mightily with Abraham. But they were a covenant family too. And so they react. And so even though there are miles of difference between them, we see the effects of the covenant. We see the effects of, the, of God working with these covenant families. And in the end, it all works out for good in terms of the covenant promise to Abraham and his seed, which is understood in the New Testament as the family of faith. And it all works out because they, because God had been working with these particular families and they had retained the theology of Jehovah in their midst, at least by degree. So uh, I mentioned the first point is so important because we've gotten away from that in our modern day. And we just, don't, we just don't see the fact that we are supposed to be together in a covenant community as we go through life. We don't change that covenant community um, arbitrarily or carelessly because the connections are so important. So we see that, we see that as we begin this text. Secondly, I want to point out how covenant piety marked Abraham's servant and also Rebecca. I've given you two verses. There are many that follow after those two. But I've given you two verses to start your search if you go back and look at this yourself. First of all, this word piety. Piety, piety is a word that um, defines our spiritual holiness before the Lord. And so we see a piety, we see a spiritual holiness before the Lord, both in Abraham's servant and in Rebekah and her family, Nahor, or, well, not Nahor, but Laban, her, um, uh, uh, her brother, and their family as they are back there in Haran, where Abraham came from. <clears throat> and um, we see here how um, there was something really going on spiritually that in, in, in many senses rivals or surpasses the kind of piety we see today 
in the New Testament church with our with our um, apparent dispensational manner of thinking today in the modern church, modern evangelical church, we tend to think that everything in the New Testament is so superior and everything in the Old Testament is, is primitive and undeveloped. Well, if you read the Psalms of David, you see where David had a theology that was much deeper than most of us. And if you look back here at this story, you see how God's spirit was working way back then, thousands of millennia, three millennia ago, was there four millennia ago, God was working, about 2000 BC, God was working in the, the families here, and he was working a piety. He was, the Holy Spirit was developing a, a, a godliness and a sense of piety, a sense of holiness in the people of that day. Now look at this, how this develops. When Abraham begins, he calls his older servant to himself, First of all, we see that he had delegated to his oldest servant everything that was his. So he trusted this man, and this man was trustworthy. This man was not the kind of man that was going to turn and uh, rebel against Abraham and try to steal, steal his stuff. This man, his greatest desire, and it touches your heart to find people like this, his greatest desire was to serve Master Abraham. He had a love, a true love for Abraham. He would not think of betraying Abraham or working out his life and making decisions so that they, uh, they were a blessing to him first of all before Abraham. As he deals with this request or this demand that Abraham places upon him, he deals with it authentically, faithfully, lawfully in terms of what we might expect from Moses and the behavior that Moses taught his people. And so Abraham goes to his servant and he says, please put your hand under my thigh. Now I remember when I first came to this in Hebrew class and seminary, I thought, what in the world is this? Putting your hand under the thigh. Basically it means that, um, that the, if you were trying to get someone in that day to swear to, to, to a certain course of behavior, the, the master would, would uh, uh, stand or sit in a chair and the servant would come and bow down before him, and he would place his hand behind, underneath the, the man's thigh. This is the, the, the thigh. And so he places the man on hand under the thigh, basically uh, embracing his master or the superior. And in that position, he would swear to do what he was saying he would do. So just a little background <laughs> information for uh, this thigh swearing that seems so strange to us today. And... Um, and so Abraham explains to him, he says, uh, um, I will make you swear by the Lord. So he's swearing by the name of Jehovah, God, that in the, the, the English text, the Hebrew behind that is Jehovah, the God of heaven and the God of earth. That he's apologetically, he's making the same claim that we make today, that this is not just an empty idea of God. This is actually the God of the heavens and the earth. This is the God of creation. This is the God who's done great things. He's brought the cosmos into existence. You're swearing by this God who's identified with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That, what, what is he swearing to? That you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Abraham was covering his positions. If he would die before he got this done, he was depending on this godly servant to take the welfare of his family into his hand. It's just, uh, as, a, as, a, 
as a, as a son of a, a man who had a meat company and was trying to keep that company going. And, and uh, I saw it pass from my grandfather to my father and then to my brother, Peter. And uh, I'm aware of how difficult it is to do to pull these things off. And um, my father, or my, my grandfather was blessed to have a, an older Italian man named Tony, Tony uh, Congel. Uh, and uh, he was not a well-cultured man in the sense of having high attainments. But Mr. Conjol was an honest man, and he was a good man. And when my, when my grandfather died, and he died in some sense stupidly, because he had not taught my father, his son, he had not taught him how to run the family business. He just was an old German father who thought he was going to live forever, I guess. And uh, so when my father, when he died suddenly, my father, well, when, when, when I went to work for the company, my father told me, he says, Dick, as naive as you are about the business now, he said, you know more about it than I knew when I took over. But he trusted, he went and he trusted this man, this older Italian man who, you know, was faithful to his wife, who executed the responsibilities that he had with my grandfather well. So my father basically placed himself in the hands of this man. This is similar to what Abraham did on this occasion. And so he, he tells him, he says, Do not take the wife, a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now people today, they just don't, they don't think it's a big thing to marry across covenant lines. I can be a member of the church and I can marry somebody outside the church. It's no big deal. People say, well, if you love, would you love her? Or you love him? That's fine. Love justifies whatever you want to do. Not in Abraham's day. Abraham was set. Abraham understood the lines of covenant continuity. I remember being a young pastor Susan and I read a book by Brownlow North, Wilt Thou Go With This Man, where it was all about marriage and how we should not marry across lines, that we should marry within the covenant lines. And it was some sort of, somewhat of a shock to us. And not a total shock, but we just, we just were not, even though I was a young Reformed pastor, I, I was not sanctified in the, the sense that I really understood or saw the the significance of this. A few years later, I'd be challenged by a young man and woman in the church that wanted to marry outside of the outside of the lines of Christianity, and uh, because basically because I'd studied this a few years ago via the sermons by Brownlow North, uh, I felt constrained. I, I, I felt like I had to put my foot down. I I called a couple of other. Uh, Reformed pastors that were maybe eight or ten years older than I was. And I said, am I wrong in, in thinking this? And they said, oh, no. They said, you are right. And they said, you have to do this. And uh, they said, if it comes, push comes to shove, if this means the end of your pastorate, because the people won't go along with it, you have to stand with Christ. That was just one of the first things that, that hit me like that. So Abraham here knew, understood things that I did not understand as a young pastor, but I, that, that I came to fairly quickly. It is of utmost importance that we marry as closely as we can within the covenant community. 
Because you just don't, you don't, we don't know ourselves. We don't, we cannot begin to comprehend all that goes into our human personalities. And when decisions need to be made three and four or five and ten years down the road in your marriage, if you have not done all that you can to marry within the covenant, your life can be destroyed by the foreign alien presuppositions that you will find in your husband or your wife. Abraham didn't have any problem with that. He understood. And so he bound his servant to go and to find, uh, and, and uh, his servant then takes this responsibility on. He, 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 he says to Abraham, I'm worried a little bit that, I mean, you put yourself in his condition. You're going to a foreign land and you're going to tell some, some man's daughter and the, and, the, and the man and his wife are going to tell them that, oh, yeah, you can trust me. I'll take your daughter and we'll go here. You know, we'll go 500 miles away. Are you kidding me? Not if you're a good covenanter. You understand the severity and the, the danger of that kind of thing. So the servant was, uh, the servant was, uh, was wary. But uh, Abraham said to him, I have prayed. I'm going, I, God has encouraged me that he will send an angel ahead of you and that you will, do, you will be able to do this task even though it seems very, very difficult to you at this time. So the servant accepts this responsibility. I, lo I love the fact that Abraham was realistic enough that he, he, th he said, you know, don't worry. If it doesn't work out, you will be freed from your oath. Now that, that takes a mature covenant thinker to, 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 to say that. In other words, he wasn't laying it out. If, if this had not worked out and the servant had come back, Abraham was not going to turn on him and betray him. Uh, just a very mature way of dealing with each other. Far more mature than I see in most people today. And so the servant, under these circumstances, he takes on that responsibility. And I see a piety. I see a real piety, a spiritual maturity in this man. Uh, he, he uses the name of God. He, it shows that he is a Jehovah worshiper, even though he's Abraham's servant. Likewise, we see the piety in Rebekah, this different family living uh, away, away in terms of the distance of those days from Abraham's family. And um, we see how, how she is so mature in, in so many ways. Uh, when he goes, he, he, he goes, he goes to her city. He stops his camels outside. And this shows that he's been thinking about these things. And so he tells us what his plan is, that he's going to, he's going to watch. And the first woman that comes, he's going to look at each of these women. And he's going to try to, in his best, he realizes that this woman is going to be crucial for Abraham's clan. So he uses his mind the best that he can use it, but he says, the first woman that I'm drawn to, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask her if she'll give me some water. And if she says back to me, yes, and I'll water your camels also. He said, that will be a sign to me. Well, he does. He, he goes and he's, Rebecca comes out. She's the very, as soon as he doesn't even get done praying the prayer, and this beautiful young woman comes out, uh, nubile in her youth and her femininity, and, uh, you know, most men are pretty good judges of women, at least in their outward, <laughs> their outward appearance. And uh, the servant, you know, said, said to himself, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make my move. And so he does. 
And Rebecca, you can just imagine how the typical young woman might have responded. 99 out of 100 women would probably just run away. The strange man is speaking to them. Rebecca responds to him. She talks to him. She's a mature young woman. She's young. She's of marrying age, which was in the mid-teens at that time, 15, 16, 17. She's a young woman. But look at the spiritual maturity that she has. She's able to speak to a man, a strange man, and not stupidly, not putting herself in danger, but carefully and wisely and mercifully. She displays the mercy and the, the loveliness of uh, a woman who lived in this area who had encountered a stranger. But you see, all she, her, her, the, the, log, the logarithms of her mind were spinning, and she was evaluating everything that the servant said. This servant was a covenant man. He spoke, circum, he spoke cir, uh, circumspectly to her. He didn't, he didn't you know, her, his eyes didn't go up and down her body and you know, like some salacious, uh, lascivious man might do. He didn't. He didn't say, "Hey, baby, you know, want to come with me?" And in, the, in the language back then, he spoke. He spoke very maturely, and she processed that correctly and maturely. So that she goes along, and she she says, uh, "Yes, you, I'll give you water." She goes right away, brings the water down. Then she says, "Let me water your camels too." <laughs> and the servant says, yes, <laughs> based upon what he had, he had said. By the time he's done, he takes out golden ornaments, bracelets uh, to, to put around her, rings. These are very valuable things. So right away, this young woman realized this man is not the normal man. This is a, an extraordinary event. And he asks her to take her to her father or uh, the, the, her male uh, protector, who happens in this case to be Laban. But look at, look at what is in the hearts of both the servant and the young woman. I mean, it's marvelous. And God was working through this. Uh, Rebecca woke up that morning like any other morning. She could have said to herself, I just want to lay in bed. I, don't, I, I, I have nothing on the agenda today that's very significant. I'm tired. I'm just going to sleep in, you know. But no, you see, the way she had been brought up and trained, she was a, a young woman who was very careful and yet very responsible for that age. In just uh, uh, just a month, she was going to be wed to a man whom she did not know. She was going to be beginning beginning a new life. You think of, of what goes into that. Most of us would be too afraid to, to venture forth. Are we... Are we uh, credulous to think that Rebecca had a faith that, that was able to deal with these exigencies which were so abnormal? No, you see, she, she was. She was mature. And so uh, she, she took them back to, to, uh, to Laban. The servant spins his tail for Laban. Laban can see the, gold, the very, very valuable gold necklace and wristlets, I mean, that, that uh, were given to uh, um, Rebecca, and this was basically if she had refused them, she would have kept that stuff. But she, uh, they were they were touched by the reality of the situation, especially when they found out that this man represented their uh, long lost uh, uncle uh, Abraham, 
and uh, and, he, and it involved the, his looking for a bride for his son. How many of how many of us would think that it was proper to to be married or to go forth like this under those circumstances? I just uh, put that forth for your for your thought. But based upon covenant thinking, based upon uh, fairly mature psychological development <clears throat> and uh, theological development, uh, Rebecca says that she will go uh, with him. <clears throat> um, uh, I'm not going to develop, I've already used up so much of my time, but <clears throat> uh, i just say number three, that God worked, like with the servant, God worked through the normal means. They knew that there was an angel working in the background, <coughs> or so the servant knew. But as he goes, he makes this plan to obtain Rebecca, and he executes that plan. That was all worked out in his own brain, but based upon the larger context of the, the challenge that Abraham had laid before him. And God worked through his his common sense, the, 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 the development that he had. See, all of us need to, as we grow in our lives, all of us need to work to become more mature and more, more understanding of the ways of the world. And God will then bring out whatever education we've gained, God will use that for, for more and greater things later on. So we see that working with both Rebecca and with Abraham's servant. Lastly, I'm just going to touch briefly on the how God favors romance and love. You know, um, it's very plain when we get to the end of this passage, verses 457 to, um, to 67, that, um, the, that God writes this, and this is Holy Scripture, and God writes this. He speaks of the fact that as they, as they were coming back, that... Um, that uh, uh, the caravan carrying Rebecca, that they lifted, they says Rebecca lifted her eyes, and she saw a man coming toward them. She asked the servant, "Who is this?" He said, "This is my master." It says also that that Isaac lifted his eyes, and he saw this caravan, and he knew that that the odds were that this caravan contained his bride. We don't know if he saw her right away, or the, the figure of this young woman, but it must have been an unbelievable marvel to him that this was before him. And so they, uh, she, she, was, she was unafraid to show herself to the average stranger, but when she knows that this is her betrothed, she covers herself with a veil, showing her humility. And uh, and uh, it says that he takes her to his mother's tent. Her mother, his mother had just recently died. He takes her to the tent of his mother and lets her set up um, uh, her stay there. And uh, she soon becomes his wife. He says that he, he took her and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now we see in the description of these things, we see the delight that the Lord has in human love. This was way before um, Rebecca has Jacob and Esau. Esau turned out to be a real problem of a kid. And she no doubt had many nights, many sleepless nights of worry and fear. Uh, 
God says from the very beginning that Isaac have I loved and Jacob have or Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And Esau was the the father of the Edomites that ended up, ended up terrifying Israel for a long time afterwards. But this was all before that. This was when they first laid eyes on each other. And there's a delight in the air. There's a beauty in the air. God is all for marriage. And when he, when he commanded us to marry one another and have families, he didn't say, you know, that you just, uh, you just find the nearest woman and, you know, set up home. No, he said, he said you should follow after Adam and Eve, where Adam says, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and bone of my bone. There was a delight there in the eyes of Adam as he saw Eve, and Eve as she saw Adam. There was a wonder. There's a beauty to human love. It still drives our, our novels, our literature, our movies. It still drives all that, even though people aren't Christians, because the way God set it up is so lovely when it works out. And so he worked it out for Isaac and Rebekah on this occasion. There was a blessed, a blessed wedding that came about within the covenant so that the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was protected and promoted and promulgated into the next generation and into the next generation after that until there were 12 sons of Jacob. And the 12 sons... Uh, bore more and more children until there were 12 tribes of children, 12 tribes to inherit the land. God gave them a wonderful fertility, a wonderful fecundity, and a wonderful prosperity and production. And so God began to fulfill his covenant promises. But he did it through this, in this, these strange circumstances where there was hardly uh, anyone except for these two families, Nahor's and Abraham's, and yet God existed, and so God worked it out. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, let our, let our hearts be touched by your providence, by your careful, loving, sovereign providence, and let us take that to heart in our lives today. Let us realize that though our lives may seem impossible and our covenant community's life may seem impossible, that it's not impossible. It's very possible because thou dost exist. Thou art the God of all being. Thou art the God of all creation. Thou art the God of all strength. Thou art the God of all possibility, Jesus says. Nothing is impossible with God. Let us have that confidence, O Lord, as we live today. And let us live pious, humble, covenant lives as we see in the life of Abraham's servant and this young woman named Rebecca. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.